Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson. I'm Brad Gullickson. And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four color realm. In this episode, we're drawing back and springing forth like an arrow across the dimensional barrier with Dinah Drake Lance and Oliver Queen, Black Canary, and Green Arrow from DC Comics. And we're applying the relationship book for new couples, proven strategies to nurture your connection and build a long lasting bond by Megan Lundgren to their relationship woes. Drawing back and springing forth like an arrow, Lisa. Is that is that what arrows do? I'm pretty sure. I actually Googled archery terms before we started, <laughs> but they all either didn't make sense or sounded dirty. Uh, as you will come to find out in this episode, Lisa and I are not at all familiar with the Green Arrow and Black Canary mythology. And so this has been a great learning experience for the two of us. It's actually been over a year since yeah. we've covered a DC couple, which is wild to me. Yeah. Because we did Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy back to back with Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon. And I guess we just got Gothamed out and completely forgot that there are other cities in the DC universe, you guys. Yeah, I think we also were just distracted by the MCU, the Disney Plus shows. We did a lot of tie-ins with the One Pod stands. We also had the Fantastic Four's 60th anniversary, Jack Kirby's birthday. So it's been a very marvelous 2021, but it turns out- That this has just been one long extended tantric experience. <laughs> yes, it has been. And now that we're living once again in the DC universe- It feels like the first time. It does feel like the first time because it is the first time with Green Arrow. And I've been reading so many Green Arrow comics this past week and Birds of Prey comics. I'm discovering how much I actually really love this mythology. It's wild. It's wild and random. I mean, from from the outside, Green Arrow and Black Canary don't actually look that extraordinary. Like, no. he's got arrow powers, she's got fishnets, but then the second you get parallel universes and Superman and Immortal Guardians and Green Lanterns involved, it's just nuts. Yeah, there is a randomness to DC Comics fantasy that is both appealing and kind of alienating. And eventually you just have to kind of like go with it. But if you get into that flow, especially these late 60s, early 70s Justice League of America comics, it's it's a ride. It reminds me a lot, actually, of reading those uh Barbara Gordon, Dick Grayson comics from the same era. The Brave and the Bold stuff. Yeah, yeah because then uh the every every comic book ends up with like, there's this completely unanticipatable loophole and guess what? This issue's done. Right, and everything is fair game. You know, this month, Benedict Arnold can be the villain. Next month, Aquarius the Living Star can be the villain. And then the month after that, it can be pollution. It can feel pretty intimidating wading into a universe 
that you don't really know that well, you're going to be like, ah, do, am I going to connect to these characters? Am I going to understand who these villains are? But like with Green Arrow and Black Canary, you just have to go with the flow and it feels so good. And their meet cute is so freaking weird. It is a major WTF and the writers work so hard to make them a couple after this tragedy that Dinah Drake goes through. But because they work so hard, you work so hard trying to engage with the writing. And by the end of it, you're like, yeah, I want these two together. I don't know. After our assigned reading, I'm kind of team vigilante. I mean, who doesn't love a cowboy, right? But what I like so much about Green Lantern and Black Canary as a couple is that they are so um, opposite. You know, and it is that cliche of like opposites attract and it does get a little sitcom-y with their antagonism towards each other. But I cannot deny my basic nature. I really do love that headbutting that they have, especially the further we get into that relationship with the Green Lantern Green Arrow comic that's going to end this discussion this week. But before this counseling session can begin, as we always do, we need to discuss a little context regarding this couple because as I alluded to, their origin is nuts. So right now, Dinah and Ollie are hanging out in our waiting room while we figure out just who the heck they are as characters. Okay, Black Canary, AKA Dinah Drake, AKA Dinah Lance, AKA Dinah Drake Lance. She made her first appearance in Flash Comics number 86 in August of 1947. She's the creation of writer Robert Kaniger and artist Carmine Infantino. She first popped up in a Johnny Thunder backup story, but she quickly took over. So sorry, Johnny. Why does she look the way she does? Well, this is what Infantino has to say on her costume and appearance. And this is a quote from the Tomorrow's publication, Carmine Infantino, publisher, penciler, provocateur, which I nabbed from a publication called Wikipedia. Ooh, that's some deep research. When Kaniger gave me the script, I said, how do you want me to draw her? He said, what's your fantasy of a good looking girl? That's what I want. Isn't that a great line? So that's what I did. I made her strong in character and sexy in form. The funny part is that years later, while in Korea on a national cartoonist trip, I met a dancer who was the exact image of the Black Canary, and I went out with her for three years. Bob didn't ask for a character sketch for the Black Canary. He had a lot of respect for me. I must say that. He always trusted my work. Bob loved my Black Canary design. And Lisa, nothing sexier than fishnets, correct? Why is that? Uh, Because it's like a bunch of teeny tiny windows to your gams. Correct. Oh, really? <laughs> it's just science, Lisa. I, I remember getting my first pair of fishnets. Oh, yeah? It was actually for a church play. We were doing the prodigal son and, you know, like, so the one naughty son goes off and like spends all of his dad's money. Well, what is he going to spend it on? Uh, booze and lady with fishnets. So I played floozy number three and I was 13 years old and I was totally stoked to be wearing fishnets. So even from a young age, you knew that like fishnets were like the forbidden sexiness. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, the fishnets history dates back to a publication from the early 1900s. It's actually a retelling of the Aesop fable, the peasant's wise daughter. And in that fable, it tells the story of a king who asks the titular peasant's daughter if she can prove her cleverness by solving his riddle, challenging her to, quote, 
Come to me not clothed, not naked, not riding. The peasant's daughter wraps herself in a fisherman's net and returns to the king. That king sounds like a real predator. Uh, yes, he does. And then during the 1920s, fishnets emerged as a more alternative trend in the U.S. and were favored by women like showgirls, Ooh. actors, Lisa, dirty, dirty actors, and in large part due to the fact that fishnets were more revealing than typical regular stockings of the day. So those tiny little windows to those gams, Lisa. Yum, yum. And then fishnets later emerged as the eminent fashion staple in the post-war pinup and print porn world with models like Betty Page, Jane Russell, and Marilyn Monroe. And then in the 1970s and 1980s, the punk counterculture's fashion aesthetic included fishnets, often worn extra torn up with huge holes on the stockings or shredded up as a reference to BDSM culture. Thanks, Wikipedia. Yay. That sounds like somebody on the internet's best guess. Yeah, definitely. I think your point back to it being little windows to the legs, like that's the appeal of fishnets. It's just another way to accentuate skin. So when you have a hero like Black Canary, Carmine Infantino's like, what's the sexiest thing I can think of? Well, that's a naked lady. And if I put just the barest minimum of clothing on her, ooh, ooh, <laughs> look at all that skin. Come to Earth One, not clothed, not naked, not powerful or less and not married oh god yeah you're yeah 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 so like now we got to talk about black canary's origin and we got to get real weird and comic booky yes we are starting a four episode podcast series on black canary and green arrow but just exactly who is black canary beyond the fishnets well that's complicated Dinah Drake Lance. She's a badass jujitsu master with one hell of a sonic scream. She's also not from around here. As we see in Justice League of America issue number 74, she's from Earth 2, across the dimensional barrier from the Green Arrow's Earth 1. She's a member of the Justice Society of America. They've got their own Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and Superman. Not to spoil too much, but when her husband Larry Lance dies in a conflict involving the treacherously cosmic creature Aquarius, Dinah leaves her reality and joins the JLA over on Earth 1, and that's where she gets cuddly with Oliver Queen, the Green Arrow. But then, many years later, DC Comics got tired of their multiverse and they launched The Crisis of Infinite Earths. At the conclusion of that maxi-series, one reality was left standing and Dinah Drake, the character we initially meet in the comics we're discussing today, became the mother of a modern-day Black Canary named Dinah Lance, who is currently dating Green Arrow. So pre-crisis, mom had Ollie, and post-crisis, daughter had Ollie, and both kind of look and behave the same way. Me and my mom have a lot in common, but <laughs> not like that. <laughs> well, then in the New 52, once that happened, mom and daughter became one. Dinah Drake Lance. And then rebirth happened, and the two Dinahs became two again. Makes sense, Lisa? No, no, Brad, it does not. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Uh, just, you know, like, it's weird and uncomfortable. And really, for our purposes, as we record these four episodes, we're just going to treat Dinah Drake Lance as one character, as their relationship with Ollie mostly operates in the same fashion. Now, when we're talking Green Arrow, Oliver Queen, his origin is a lot less complicated, thankfully. 
Uh, the character first appeared in More Fun Comics in November of 1941. Green Arrow is the creation of Mort Weisinger and George Papp. Like Batman, he's a billionaire by day, vigilante by night. Unlike Batman, his kink is Robin Hood, not flying rodents. Where Bats has his utility belt, the Emerald Archer has a quiver full of trick arrows. There's no situation where a bow can't get Ollie out of it. Not only was the Green Arrow inspired by Robin Hood, he took a great chunk of his inspiration from the 1925 10-part film serial The Green Archer, which was based on the Edgar Wallace novel of the same name. And all those similarities to Batman were intentional. Editor Mort Weisinger wanted the Green Arrow to have a sidekick like Bats, so in came Ollie's pal Speedy. There was also the Arrow Car and the Aeroplane and the Arrow Cave. And yeah, there's also the Arrow Signal. And even one of his earliest villains was a Joker-like clown called Bull's Eye. No, not the Daredevil villain. The character enjoyed moderate success until writer Denny O'Neill got his hands on him with the Justice League of America comics that we'll be talking about today. And then in 1970, he, along with superstar artist Neil Adams, radically evolved the character by partnering him up with Hal Jordan in the Green Lantern Green Arrow series, Ollie lost his fortune and he became far more socially conscious. From there, he gained a lot of traction and has been a staple of the JLA and DC Comics as a whole. He's appeared in nearly every animated cartoon series. And of course, he was oh so sexy in the CW show Arrow that dared to ditch the green. And yes, we've dabbled in the TV Arrowverse. How can you deny Stephen Amell? That man is dreamy. He has his own wine club. I want to be a part of it. Why are we not a part of it? Green Arrow and Black Canary were B-listers. They both began as backup stories to more popular comics, but they rose in the ranks and they've inspired great passion. And I love the sincerity in which these stories are frequently told. I'm stoked for this podcast series we're doing, and I'm stoked by the relationship angle we're taking. So yeah, Lisa, it's time for you to take it away. Who will be our love expert for Dinah and Ollie? It is Megan Lundgren, Lumpft, Lumpft. licensed marriage and family therapist. Oh, LMFT. Through her book, The Relationship Book for New Couples, Proven Strategies to Nurture Your Connection and Build a Long-Lasting Bond, published in May 2021 from Rockridge Press. It was hard to pick a love expert to follow up Gretchen Rubin and the Four Tendencies, which is what we used for Reed and Sue, but I knew I wanted to go back to the basics with a straightforward relationship book rather than a more general self-help book. I resorted to just searching on that online literary boutique Amazon, and this book was one of the sponsored suggestions. I'm a sucker, ads work on me. My criteria was admittedly nil, but I was in no mood for a sneaky conservative relationship book which so many relationship books are. You've got to keep your feelers out. But the from the publisher blurb had three pictures, which were a black couple, an Asian couple, and a white lesbian couple. And I was like, everybody looks happy. This is good enough for me. Excellent. The relationship book for new couples is part informational, but mostly a workbook full of questions, quizzes, and exercises intended for couples who are either deepening their level of commitment, like getting engaged, moving in together, etc., or couples looking to reassert their commitment as they prepare to renew their vows or reach another life milestone. 
The intention of the book outlined in the introduction is to provide, quote, evidence-based therapeutic strategies to help a couple build essential relationship skills. Megan Lundgren is Director of Relationships for Better, a private therapy practice based in Monterova, California, where they practice, quote, positive relationship psychology, which is actually a thing. <laughs> Lundgren chose to drop the phrase positive relationship psychology in the introduction in a way that is like, sounds great, doesn't it? Don't bother looking it up. Like the Happiness Hotel and the Great Muppet Caper. If this is the <laughs> Happiness Hotel, I'd hate to see what the sad one looks like. Like you come out of therapy weeping and you're like, if this is positive relationship psychology. But I gave it a goog. According to Psychology Today, positive psychology de-emphasizes addressing dysfunction and focuses more on character strengths and positive behaviors and how we can build from there. The book is in three parts. Part one, honoring our relationships, a celebration of commitment. Part two, strengthening our bond, relationship skills. And part three, building our future tools for looking ahead. It is weird that each part has a title and a subtitle. It's bizarre. So far, I've read through part one. For this episode, we'll dip into part one, chapter one, entitled Who We Are, which focuses on identity. Your identity as individuals within a relationship and your identity as a couple. Lundgren says that the best, if counterintuitive, way to deepen a newly committed relationship is to identify and appreciate the differences between the individuals. Lundgren actually cites Esther Perel, who was our love expert for Susie and John from Sex Criminals, who says that, quote, love rests on two pillars, surrender and autonomy. Without the surrender of the individuals coming together, there is no relationship. But when there is no autonomy, when the identities are too merged, you lose the satisfaction of coming together. To quote Perel, there is nothing more to transcend, no bridge to walk on, no one to visit on the other side, no internal world to enter. To my delight, Lundgren actually refers to a scene from the 1999 classic film, The Runaway Bride. Still haven't seen that flick. That's weird. That I actually think about IRL all of the time. I That's literally weird. think about... <laughs> <laughs> Julia Roberts is the runaway bride who has the track record of getting engaged only to leave her betrothed at the altar. And Richard Gere plays the love interest, a reporter who is doing a fluff piece on her. Richard Gere asks each of her exes, how does she like her eggs? And each answers, oh, she likes her eggs like I like my eggs, poached or scrambled or sunny side or whatever. And it turns out she'd just order her eggs however her fiancé du jour ordered his. She'd just merge her egg identity with his. <laughs> so then we get the scene where she has all of these egg dishes laid out in front of her, and she is determined to see how she actually likes her eggs. And how is that? Is it deviled eggs? Because deviled eggs are the best. I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure it's poached. Poached are great. Poached are great. Lundgren uses this scene to illustrate that an essential step to authentically sharing yourself with another person is to know yourself. Quote, individuals who cultivate a greater degree of identity development tend to experience higher levels of intimacy in their relationships. Lundgren then includes two exercises. One is a list of getting to know you questions where, where would you go if you could go anywhere or what books, classes, or speakers have changed your life, etc. And she suggests the old chestnut, two truths and a lie. It's cute. 
but I think that the action item is to delineate and celebrate what makes you and your partner individuals. Mm. Have genuine curiosity about your partner's perspective. I like the image from Esther Perel about how relationship can be a bridge where you and your partner come together and just like look around, have a new perspective. Once you've established what makes you and your partner individuals, you can then begin to explore what makes you and your partners and us. Lundgren calls on the work of psychologist Terry Hargrave, who refers to the quality of us-ness, which is the identity of the relationship, which is separate from the identities of the individuals within the relationship. For her example, Lundgren refers to a hypothetical couple Taylor and Leslie, who have been bickering weekly over Friday night plans. Taylor wants to go out to dinner, while Leslie would rather stay home and watch a documentary. Their therapist suggests that they think back to their dating relationship and the activities that brought them together. They like to go to classes and events at the city college and then stay up late at night discussing them. Separately, they didn't enjoy those educational events alone, but together, they shared a genuine interest in learning together and discussing their thoughts. So, to nurture their us-ness, they sign up for a current events club and then get takeout on their way home so they can discuss over dinner. They're real wild children. <laughs> I don't know. Going to a class together sounds actually pretty fun to me. Snooze teach. Taylor likes to go out. Leslie likes to stay in. But as a couple, they like to learn and discuss. Their us-ness doesn't negate who they are as individuals, but instead opens up the individuals to new experiences that they might not get otherwise. Lundgren uses this quote from Hargrave. When two can look at the relationship as an identity in and of itself, the third identity of us, they start to move together in cooperation, not conflict. It stretches us to grow in ways that would never take place unless we are in the context of each other. I love that last little bit, the idea of understanding each other through the context of each other. Like that makes total sense to me and I think will be crucial in discussing Dinah and Ollie. Absolutely. I think in this first session with Dinah and Oliver, I'd like to keep a running inventory of how they choose to define and differentiate themselves as individuals and perhaps begin to describe their third identity and their us-ness so that we can have these building blocks to refer mm. back to in upcoming sessions. Yeah, I love this. But before we get Dinah and Ollie onto our couch for their session, Lisa, we got to do some words of affirmation. No, no. Now, Lisa, for our first-time listeners, let's explain exactly what the words of affirmation portion of the show is. Sure. The words of affirmation portion are a way we give back to our new and upgrading Patreon subscribers. I am a huge believer in using positive affirmations, and I curate and use these affirmations for myself, and I'm more than happy to pass them on to you. These particular affirmations we're about to give come from Lou Sullivan, Dolly Parton, and Nomad Souls with two Z's.com. We actually had a lot of people sign up this week because we launched a new podcast series over on Patreon in which Lisa and I read Sandman issue by issue and discuss each issue one episode at a time. So we're starting with Sandman number one from November 1988 
And then the next week's episode is going to be Sandman number two. This is going to be a long and I think rewarding endeavor. I'm really excited about it. Already it's created a lot of conversation on our social media feeds and it's been a lot of fun talking to people about Sandman. Lisa read it back in college. Mm -hmm. I've never read Sandman. So it's this incredible journey of discovery. I'm having so much fun with it. So yes, to all these new patrons that signed up for the Sandman show, thank you so much Super appreciate your support. Of course, we don't expect everyone listening to back our Patreon. And there are other ways that you can support Comic Book Couples Counseling without spending a dime. And that is going to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star review. Those reviews really do help us reach more listeners and grow our community. So thank you to all of you that have done so. And if you haven't yet, no shame, but no time like the present. Click the link on the show notes and leave us a five-star review. And even though these particular affirmations are dedicated to these individuals, that doesn't mean if one resonates with you, you can't take it and keep it for yourself because that's what we do. So let's center our minds. Let's get calm and open our hearts to receiving some affirmations. Corey, you are your own interpretation of happiness. Itty Zikapata. Your positive mindset attracts the opportunities for you to grow. Bill Kelly. Talent is a pursued interest. Anything you're willing to practice, you can do. Jeff. Find out who you are and do it on purpose. 2-1 Beckett, a.k.a. Christopher Beckett. Don't get so busy making a living that you forget to make a life. Clayton. You creatively express the deeper meanings of art and share it with the universe. Greg Lambert. When you think positive thoughts, you attract positive outcomes. Sean Wells. You enjoy sharing yourself with others. Yeah. <sighs> All right. That there was nice. Go. Yeah. Now, comics. We're talking Justice League of America issues 74 through 75 and 78 through 79, published by DC Comics between September 1969 and March 1970, as well as Green Lantern, Green Arrow, number 78, published in July of 1970. All the comics are written by the late, great Denny O'Neill, and they're penciled by Dick Dillon and Neil Adams. They're inked by Sid Green, Joe Jella, and Frank Jacoya. They're lettered by John Costanza. And DC Comics at the time did not credit the colorists, so we're not exactly sure who made these books so dang bright and crisp, but there's a good chance it was Gene D'Angelo. And if you know for sure, please let us know. Uh, shoot us an email, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. The basic plot, well, that's tough to pin down. And because we're covering so many comics... Let's just focus in on that first issue here of Justice League of America. Uh, but as we already stated, the living star Aquarius steals the star rod from Earth 2's star man and uses it to erase Earth 2 from reality, leaving only a few Justice Society of America members trapped in a protective bubble provided by Dr. Fate. The Red Tornado travels to Earth 1 and alerts the Justice League of America, and they come to the rescue. 
Aquarius then uses his powers to infect the JSA's minds and turn them against the JLA and superhero Royal Rumble shenanigans occur. And it's always fun when you have like two mirror universe teams battling each other to see who pairs up with who, right? So obviously like the cover image is Superman versus Superman. And you also have Wonder Woman versus Wonder Woman and Green Lantern versus Green Lantern. But then you have Batman versus Dr. Midnight, uh, the Flash and the Atom team up against Dr. Fate. And that really just leaves Green Arrow to battle Black Canary and her husband, Larry Lance, the cop. Makes sense to me. They are the three people on this page. It makes the least sense to have in a zero gravity space fight. Yeah, and I think that's what was, what Denny was thinking too. But knowing what we know, when we see them share a panel for the first time, which is the big splash page of the issue, this gorgeous red and yellow brawl where we see the JSA and the JLA paired off with their proper opponents. And Ollie is up against Larry and Dinah. And I mean, it's a very severe, very like, you know, fisticuffs moment, but knowing that Larry is about to die in just a few pages. This first image is so haunting and upsetting. And it's it's just such a weird place to go, this is the moment. This is where Ollie and Dinah become a couple. It's gonna get hot and heavy from here. This issue's a little icky. I just had a weird thought. Is there currently in this timeline an Earth One equivalent to Dinah or Larry? I, I don't think so. Now, listeners, correct me if I'm wrong, but no, I think this is the only version of Black Canary and Larry Lance. What if together Dinah and Larry Lance make the variant equivalent to the Green Arrow? <laughs> so they're just an extension of his infatuation with himself, right? Dinah is his adventuresome side larry uh, is his upholder side uh, i mean I, I i do like that and considering that wonder woman versus wonder woman uh uh batman versus dr midnight i mean clearly they're like on the same level their equivalence is there so that must mean that larry and dinah equal one green arrow and that would kind of justify her indescribable attraction oh. to oliver queen despite him being such an a-hole you're, you're trying to get the squidgies out of their romance I, I i that's a valiant effort maybe maybe i'm saying it could be like a loki sylvie situation okay all right i like it i like it. i definitely think that's how marvel would approach it today and now there is this beautiful subtext about self-love and and uh you know? Yeah, I think you're, I mean, I think it's a stretch, <laughs> but you know, whatever makes you more comfortable with their romance, I'm okay with. Now, their first actual confrontation, Greed Arrow, Ollie, he says like, I'm gonna need a new gizmo to take care of this lady. And he pulls out a new trick arrow. He draws it back, he fires, and it it, it explodes. And when it explodes, it rains down this very yellow goo upon Dinah. It, he calls it his his stickum shaft. It's his stickum shaft. His stickum shaft explodes <laughs> and rains a golden glow upon Dinah, and she gets stuck on the floor in all its stickum shaftness. I feel like in our introduction, we may have used up all of our 
eighth grade humor sensibilities. <laughs> but then they're fighting over a guy's rod, and this guy <laughs> is splooging his stickum shaft all over our heroine. And so there, there's this these two word balloons coming out of Ollie's noggin as he stares down at a totally incapacitated black canary covered in yellow goo. And he goes, perfect. The molecules of the plastic contract upon contact and black canary is caught like a fly in molasses. The stickum chef has earned itself a permanent place in my quiver. I do admire Ollie's adherence to using non-fatal weapons mm. in his confrontations as the Green Arrow. We see it here, but you're going to find it consistent throughout these storylines. And I think that it shows that he's a man of principles. I mean, I love this era of Green Arrow. I like all the tricks. I like the boxing glove arrow. I love the stickum shaft. You know, these things will disappear in the 80s when everything goes grim dark. But this Silver Age, early Bronze Age Green Arrow is a lot of fun. And so, you know, give me that arrow car. Give me the arrow signal. I want all this stuff. I also like the fact that he's somewhat handicapped by the size of his uh, quiver <laughs> yeah, like yeah. so he's like yeah i totally have the arrow for everything but unfortunately i can only carry like this many yeah yeah but like batman's utility belt it, he always seems to have the right arrow for the right job even if it's not the one that he was necessarily thinking like oh this is the one i wanted i guess i'm gonna have to try out this new one it doesn't even have a name yet i'm gonna call it the stickum shaft i hope uh, we have we don't get one in this episode, but I would love a super satisfying scene of him looking at his closet of arrows. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There are splash pages of all the various arrows that he has in his toolkit. But I just want a scene like clueless where he's like, <laughs> "What's going to be the arrows I carry today?" Yeah, on Wednesdays we wear boxing glove arrow. <laughs> But you have this moment where Dinah is, you know, on the floor and Green Arrow is admiring his stickum shaft handiwork. And Larry comes up behind Ollie, bops him on the head, knocks him unconscious. But meanwhile, Green Lantern and Aquarius are fighting. And to escape uh, Green Lantern, Aquarius turns into this pseudo rainbow where yellow is the primary color that forces Green Arrow away. And the pseudo rainbow travels to the area where Black Canary is held captive by the goo and she's going to die and Larry throws his body in front of the pseudo-rainbow and is obliterated. I think Larry being killed while Dinah is incapacitated by the stickum shaft adds an extra layer of guilt oh, yeah. to him being dead and for her to be so attracted to Green Arrow, who is the guy who incapacitated her. So, like, in effect, Green Arrow kills Larry Lance. I don't know if Dinah ever sees it that way, but she definitely carries some guilt for I mean, herself. And I see it that way, you know, because if he had not imprisoned her in the goo, uh, you know, she wouldn't be the first subject for the pseudo-rainbow to destroy. But if Larry didn't punch him so hard... 
perhaps Oliver would have intervened. And he would have had an arrow for this situation with the pseudo rainbow. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. I don't know. Like it, like I do think ultimately greed arrow is instrumental in Larry's death and there's no getting around that. So when he finally starts to make moves on Dida so shortly after killing her husband uh it's just nasty it's gross and i can see why dc needed uh, a crisis to correct this and erase this moment from time i think green arrow could very well have no idea exactly how it happened because he was unconscious at the time yeah that's true and at no point in the upcoming issues does he address any part in you know putting Dinah in that situation, which led to Larry's death. So I do think he's operating with a clear conscience. When Justice Society comes out of its trance and Earth 2 returns, Dinah is devastated, obviously, and she's weeping over her dead husband. And the person who is like the second most distraught over the situation is actually Alan Scott, Earth 2's Green Lantern, and he goes like, I'm going to avenge him for you, don't you worry? And she was not even hearing it. She's like, I am too sad to even consider revenge right now. And Alan seems to have this kind of revelatory moment of like, we're all heroes and we all celebrate these amazing feats that we do, but we have to remind ourselves every day that that is what we're trying to avoid, that kind of personal devastation of one woman having her life destroyed. Yeah, yeah, and the focus of that panel is him looking at her tragedy and feeling her tragedy. It's a really nice moment within this issue. Later on Earth 2, Larry Lance gets a proper burial, officiated by Superman, interesting enough. I didn't know he had taken any kind of vows. Yeah, well, you know, Superman can do it all, Lisa. <laughs> um, but of course, Aquarius has to crash the party, rubbing salt into poor Dinah's wounds. Yeah, I mean, and the, the, the juxtaposition of Superman officiating, and then the very next panel is, you know, everyone's crying, but then you have these very large lettered ha-ha-has coming from Aquarius. And, like, the moment those ha-ha-has come in, Larry Lance's, like, memory in this series is gone. Dinah shouts, you murderer! But Wonder Woman is like, chill, girl. There's nothing you can do. And the final fight is actually between Aquarius and the two Green Lanterns. And they destroy uh, the living star. And in the wake of that victory, Dinah says, you know, I can't remain here on Earth, too. I'm glad it's back to existing, but I don't want to be on it at all. Can I join you guys? Can I join the Justice League and hang out on Earth 1? And Superman just picks him up in his arms and goes like, let's go. And the narrator goes, thus a lovely woman seeks to soothe her torment in another place. Don't you totally understand that, though? 100%. We talk about that all the time. Like when we're having like a really terrible work week, you're just like, I, I just want to pack my bags and move across the planet. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about how like sometimes when I'm in a dark place, I, I'll tell you, Brad. If you die, if you leave this mortal coil before me, I am moving into your parents' house and it's going to be the Gullickson House of Sadness. Yeah, I yeah. am not going to try to forget you. I am not going to move on. So my parents' <laughs> house is your earth too. That's right. But Dinah does move on, Lisa. I don't think that metaphor works. I think you just 
cross state lines and you get all new neighbors. Because in all seriousness, if something so awful like that were to happen, the last thing I want you to do is to just give up on your own life. I want you to continue to thrive. I want you to keep this podcast going, Lisa. <laughs> Uh, I promise you I will not. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a really grim show. Uh, Lisa, Comic Book Couples Counseling, uh, co-hosted by the empty chair <laughs> of Brad Gullickson. I'd get a medium. Okay, good. Yeah, get a medium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The show must go on. The very next issue actually pairs Green Arrow and Black Canary as a couple, as narrators for this next story. Uh, Justice League of America 75 is my favorite comic of the comics we read for this week. It does feel like a Star Trek original series episode. Uh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's also worth noting that this is the first time in the pages of Justice League of America that Ollie is now sporting that traditional mustache goatee combo. I think because if you want to bed a widow, you should differentiate yourself from the deceased spouse. Uh, oh, well, the, you know, you might have something there because the beard was put into place by Neil Adams in 1969's The Brave and the Bold number 85 as a way of differentiating him from Batman. And the way that they did that is they showed in this issue their two radically opposing philosophies. And also Neil Adams was like, well, let's put the cherry on top. Let's really show that he is not like Bruce Wayne. He's got a beard. I like the beard. I think it uh, like really drives home the Robin Hood of it all. Yeah, I mean, suddenly he's Errol Flynn. And I think once you see Neil Adams' Green Arrow, you go, yeah, that's the look. That's what Green Arrow should always be. Another thing that differentiates Oliver Queen from Batman now is that he's broke. Yes, he is broke, penniless. In the first couple of pages, we get a flashback to him being wrongfully accused of embezzling. Uh, so he decides to go on a casual slum walk where he comes across a mugging and he's like, great, this is a perfect opportunity to try some new Green Arrow gear. And uh, once he is triumphant over the muggers, the guy who is being beat upon was like, I am so lucky that you're here. You are about the most useful guy in town, which I think lays out the subplot for Oliver Queen, who goes like, if I am not a rich guy with all of this money, right. like, who am I? What purpose do I serve? Right. And this internal question is what sends him to a psychologist who has this uh, nutso machine <laughs> that brings out his id and his id is evil and wants to start attacking things and stealing money. It's all his darkest thoughts. What I think is hilarious is that like Dr. Oil is not an evil genius. That was not the purpose of his machine. Uh, but because he came in contact with something out in outer space that was unanticipatable. This poor psychiatrist has an id ghost loose in his office. Yeah, so the id actualizer is weaponized by the aura that Green Arrow is carrying from Aquarius. And Ollie's id aura then goes and attacks the Justice League. And when the id touches these members, their ids escape their body and go on a crime spree as well. 
and except for Superman, because Superman is so pure of heart, there's no evil id to escape. No, that's not the way it's explained in the comic. No? In the comic, it says he like didn't get close enough to Aquarius to have his residue touch him, so he, he's not affected by the id actualization. Uh, I, okay, so when I read this panel on page 11 first, where he says, like, uh, uh, Superman says, apparently none of Aquarius's mystic residue hit me. I don't have an evil other self. I just thought he meant like, I don't have an evil other self, uh, <laughs> so there will be no dark id. That could be very well be true, but I would, if Superman has an evil other self, I would hate to meet him. What's hilarious about this, though, going forward, is Superman has to convince the other Justice League members to confront their dark halves because their dark halves beat them down so severely they were just distraught and Superman's like no we can do this we can do this together as a team you can defeat your dark self and they're like no we can't and he goes oh no look there there's my evil id it's finally here and this green shaded Superman comes out and they start fighting and Superman defeats his evil id and the Justice League they they find their confidence they're like if Superman can defeat his evil self we can defeat our evil selves and they go off to capture their ids but that green evil Superman was actually just one of Superman's robots and he tricked the team into finding some courage. Turns out Superman quite the tinkerer. Oh, Superman's like Dr. Doom. He's got superbots all over the place. When Green Arrow catches up with his id ghost, it's in that same slum from the beginning of the issue. And the Green Arrow ghost goes like, don't you get it? I'm you. You fought lawbreakers out of convenience and you liked the fame and the fun of it. But underneath it all, you're just Oliver Queen, more interested in wealth and fame than actually doing any good. Which I think is probably partially true because this is Oliver Queen's real id, but that is enough to take the wind out of his sails and totally allow his id ghost to rob this poor <laughs> right. old couple's jewelry store. And they come out of the store and they go like, you know what? We're not your mom and pop, yeah. but we're super disappointed in you yeah. because now, because of that robbery, we're not going to be able to pay our rent. And so that moment of shame is really what kickstarts Green Arrow into going like, okay, let me think again. Like, why am I me? What do I want out of life? I think what drove it home for Green Arrow was that couple saying like, we always got the impression that you were one of the heroes that actually cared. Mm -hmm. So I like the idea of whether that's fully true or not, whether he gets some kind of personal selfish satisfaction out of being a hero, the, the people that he rescues do feel loved by his actions. And I think that that's important. I mean, taking on the Emerald Archer appearance, Robin Hood's get up, he's also taking on, you know, robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. So like at the core of Green Arrow's purpose is to give back to the community. And whether you're doing the right thing for selfish reasons or for service reasons, the, it's still the right thing. It's still the right thing to do. And people will still receive the feeling of love, even if that love isn't in your heart at the exact moment that you're doing it. When So Green Arrow jumps up. He's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to confront my evil side. They both shoot simultaneously. Yeah. And they both hit. And when... 
Green Arrow hits the Green Arrow ghost, the id ghost shimmers away. But Green Arrow is shot in the leg and he is injured. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and like, what a perfect visual metaphor for the confrontation that's happening inside Ollie's soul. Like, it is a very powerful comic in, as you said, a Star Trek TOS kind of way. And Green Arrow's ending narration says that, like, we all ha are carrying around an evil, selfish self inside of us. And the best that we can do is operate despite it. Yeah. And I would like to go the next level and go like when you have like an evil impetus inside of you it's probably the result of some kind of self-preservational defense mechanism yeah defensiveness for sure so i think that um another way to deal with your dark inner self is to say like you know what id i see you I understand you. I know you're just trying to protect me right now, but I don't really need you. Yeah, not today. Not today, Satan. Now, Dinah's discovery of self is seemingly less helpful. While Ollie is off having this journey of self-discovery, Black Canary is fully present while the other members of the Justice League openly debate on whether she is worthy of being a member of the Justice League because she doesn't have any powers and they don't want to feel responsible if a woman gets killed or injured. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, Batman's got no powers. Yes, he's got a ton of money. Green Arrow's got some arrows. That's it. Uh, Dinah is a master of jujitsu, and we have seen her kick all kinds of butt over the, just the course of these two issues. Hawkman is like... Yeah. She's good enough for Earth 2 standards, yeah. but here on Earth 1, we're dealing with more than, like, common criminals. Hawkman, you were just fighting Aquarius, the living star, who eradicated Earth 2. That's a pretty nasty villain for Earth 2. I think they can uh, they can hold their own. Hawkman is a Thanagarian. Yeah. I don't know exactly what their culture is like. I mean, he's got some superiority issues, that's for sure. <laughs> but Batman has no excuse. And he's the one who's going like, uh, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but I don't want to feel responsible for endangering her needlessly. And Black Canary starts becoming emotionally distraught from the bickering, apparently. And then she begins hearing this singing in the back of her head. And she hears this sound that feels like it's both coming from her and not coming from her. And then all of the members of the Justice League are knocked on their butt. And it's the introduction of the sonic scream. And this does feel like uh, Denny O'Neill responding to maybe some fan criticism about like, why is this jujitsu member on the team? Oh, well, she actually does have this mighty weapon in her voice. But sometimes when men are speaking about a woman like she's not in the room, I think that <laughs> level of frustration after you've proved yourself yes. without powers repeatedly, you know, like 
I can imagine that level of frustration just uh, causing a mutation and screaming out of you because it is the worst. And as a fan of Black Canary, you know, it's so exciting for her to get this power. But then what you realize is they're now going to make it part of the plot where she does not have full control over it. And it's going to take weeks and weeks or actually months and months of training for her to truly understand the power that she has. But Superman does give her a motorcycle. Yes. So it's like, you know, can't control your powers. Rad bike. Uh, it's kind of worth it. Yeah, yeah. This issue ends with our two narrators, Black Canary and Green Arrow, surrounded by, like, records and recording equipment. So apparently the reason they're narrating is for the Justice League archives. But uh, Green Arrow tries to put in nice, like, like <laughs> a little pin on it and yeah. go, like, you know, I'm injured. I'm penniless. But I'm so happy and fulfilled because now I truly know who I am. And then Black Canary goes like, well, that's great for you, buddy. (laughs) But like, I'm out of my time. I'm off of my earth. And, you know, like, we're we're both injured because now I have this power that I can't control. And I'm confused and frustrated. We're both crippled, Green Arrow. You by your wound. Me by my loss my doubt perhaps with some luck and some love we can both find health again the end (laughs) horrible yes it is and i don't have much to say about the next issue justice league of america number 78 other than like it has a bunch of great examples of some really atrocious flirting on ollie's part the justice league apparently needed a new headquarters because the joker broke the old one so this publishing company who's always bugging the Justice League for stories allows the Justice League to use their roof. And on the roof, there is this tube that's supposed to transport them to their headquarters. But the tube is small. Yeah, they're, they're, the, the tube is small. The headquarters is the watchtower, their, their famous satellite space station. It looks kind of like DS9 to me. It does. It does. <laughs> absolutely. But yeah, that tube... It's very small. It's hard for one individual to get into. But Black Canary doesn't want to go alone because it's scary. It, it, it kind of reminds me of, like, do you remember when you used to deposit checks at the drive-thru? Yeah, like the big tube. <laughs> you know what it reminded me of? It what? reminded me of, again, Star Trek, the motion picture. McCoy not wanting to use the transporter, not trusting it, right? <laughs> What's going to happen when my molecules get, uh, you know, reconfigured? And Black Canary has never done anything like this. This is not something that she has on Earth, too. And she's like, I I don't trust your science. Uh, Green Arrow is like, I volunteer because I can't think of a person I'd rather get in a tiny tube with. Creepy. That panel is very aggressive. One, it's on an all-black background, right? So it has a darkness to it that the rest of the page doesn't. And Dinah is at the bottom of the panel and... She doesn't look like frightened or anything, but she definitely looks like concerned. But Green Arrow, he looms large behind her. He's coming in almost predatory. And the expression on his face doesn't match kind of like the nudge, nudge, wink, wink attitude. The expression itself, the illustration is very stern, serious. Like he's almost got dagger pupils. It's a scary image. He looks like Michael Myers. It is a very menacing panel and maybe you know that just recently suppressed evil side his it has bubbled to the surface momentarily it happened 
happens to every man, right? Every once in a while you see a pretty lady, you're like, I want to get in a tube with her. I mean, you're making light of it. And yes, the tone of the scene is not as serious or as dangerous as I'm making it out with my 2021 vision. But also I think because of the way this panel in particular is drawn, I think it does highlight and underscore how I'm feeling from my current place in time. This illustration, this panel betrays the tone of the scene. You do make an excellent point. And the way that Green Arrow goes after Black Canary so assertively, so soon after her husband is killed, is in terrible taste. Uh, but I can't help but feel a little bit of warmth and sweetness in my heart for poor Denny O'Neill, mm. who is trying in 1969 to be so progressive. Like, look how cool I am. I'm putting a lady in the team and she's strong and she has powers. Yes. But at the same time, he's like screwing it up so badly yeah, I mean, and it's like, cute. Yes, there is a very admirable effort being put forth here by Denny O'Neill and that is the highlight of his work with this character, especially when we get to Green Arrow, Green Lantern, or Green Lantern, Green Arrow with Neil Adams. Like they are trying to be very socially conscious and progressive. And I dig all of that. Even by 2021 standards, 1970 is still like, they're still like, they're not getting everything right, but you know, good for you. And compared to their compatriots, they are like light years ahead. Valiant effort. I think that that's what this can be uh, put in the box of. Yeah. But Black Canary doesn't seem bothered by Green Arrow's advances or intrigued for that matter. No. And she does seem open to flirting with people, but uh, she she has eyes for a certain cowboy. She she has eyes for Vigilante. Which I think is super interesting because the Vigilante is another superhero who bases his whole getup on a very outdated model. Like, you know, Green Arrow, Robin Hood. Vigilante, cowboys. Although I guess in 1969, we're a little bit closer to the golden age of Western, so it makes maybe a little more sense than Green Arrow. I think they're both men who like a one-stop shop. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Oliver Queen, REI, yeah, yeah. Vigilante Western Goods Store. I do want to read more Vigilante comics after these two issues here. The idea of a cowboy operating in a, a land where there are active superheroes, where you're like, I really have nothing to offer aside from like- Bullets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bullets in my uh, handkerchief in front of my face. Although when we meet him, he's in the guise of a night watchman and he has discovered this alien conspiracy where visitors are coming to earth and purposefully polluting it so that the, our environment can become hospitable to their biology. But once he changes from the Watchman uniform to his giddy up get up, Black Canary is like, you know Ooh. what? You're, you are pretty handsome. How about you hop on the back of this motorcycle? And Vigilante does because he's like, my masculinity, so strong. So strong. I'll ride on the back of a bike. And the two of them do get to the factory along with the Adam and Batman, but they are immediately captured, wrapped up in a net, held over a vat of chemicals. They're about to be dunked and Green Arrow arrives. And this is the perfect job for him. He's got his quiver. He's got the perfect arrow to cut them down. He does so. 
everyone's free. They're bum rushed by the aliens. The factory that they're in becomes a rocket ship like the Baxter building and flies into space. And that's when they finally go like one on one with Chalk, the leader. And Ollie and Dinah's relationship is taken to the next level in a very peculiar and odd way, like everything that goes on between the two in these Justice League of America comics. Chalk goes to shoot the vigilante, but Black Canary attacks him so his aim isn't true, but the ricochet still manages to hit him and knock him unconscious. So Black Canary goes in to avenge him, but there's like all of this oil on the floor uh, because the because of the holes in the ship, they're self-repairing. I guess there's a lot of like residue and she slips and she falls and it's going to be Larry Lance all over again. Yeah, like, when she, <laughs> like it's a slip. You know, the, there's the one panel where she's slipping and it's like, oopsie. And then the next panel, she is face planted on the floor. She needs a doctor. We've all had those moments where we're like, I'm going to be <laughs> so smooth. And then we immediately fall on her face and Chalk takes her hostage. And the Adam goes to Batman and whispers in his ear, like, I've got a plan, just stall for time. <laughs> so ba what Batman decides to do is go like, before you shoot her, there's something I, I just gotta say. Black Canary, in our time together, I've come to really admire you. And then Green Arrow, who is not in on the plan, goes like, but wait, I have to tell her, I am totally in love with you. Yeah, I gotta beat Batman to the punch because he's got all the money. I'm penniless now. I can't let Bruce take Black Canary. I love you. It's like, it's a rushed confession. And you know what this reminded me of, Lisa? What, what? The first time I said I love you oh, to yeah. you <laughs> because it was just like a slip. It was just like, oh, have a good night. All right, bye. I love you. And then you're like, oh, now I gotta commit. Now I gotta commit. I gotta marry her. <laughs> Yeah, because otherwise that would be so awkward. So awkward otherwise. <laughs> so um, the Adam does save the day with a teeny tiny punch. He knocks out Chalk. Uh, but later at the end, Green Arrow was like, I know that uh, there was like this plan, which I, I, I was totally in on. But I did totally mean my confession of love. Right. And he puts Black Canary in this awkward place of being like super straightforward with him. And she's like, please, I like you. I've come to admire you. But I am still full of mourning and and memories of my late husband. And, you know, like maybe someday I'm going to be open to something. But I need to discover myself and who I am. And let's just be grateful that we saved the day today. And Green Arrow looks over and he sees factories spewing pollution. And he's like, did we? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the climax of this issue. You know, uh, issue 75 is my favorite issue that we read for this week. But this panel, the final panel of issue 79 is my favorite panel because it looks like a 50s Jack Kirby young romance cover. It's really beautiful. It captures the confusion, the torment, uh, on Black Canary's face. And because it's a Denny O'Neill comic, they're making a comment on, hey, guess what? 
this planet is doomed if we don't do something in 1970. It's 2021. We still haven't done anything, guys. I love how Green Arrow expects her to listen all the way through, through his awkward confession of love. But by the time she gets to the end of her, like, hey, I'm not really ready. I need some personal space to time and think, discover myself. He's already thinking about something else. Yeah, he's already he, like, hey, that pollution looks terrible yeah, over there. Yeah, he can't deal with her reality. Her because, rejection of him. Uh, well, yes, because it is a lot. Like when he thinks about the loss that she's experiencing. That's just something where that he can't go there. He cannot go there. I think you're giving him way too much credit. <laughs> I think that he could tell from the first half a sentence, like, oh, she's saying no right now. I'm going to try again in the next issue. Let's see where she's at in maybe a, a page or two. You, you're, you're yeah, you're probably right. Okay. I do like how these early issues in Justice League of America establish them as having some kind of chemistry, there's something there, but also the tragedy of her life makes it impossible for them to connect now, but leaves uh, the possibility open for the future. And so it is very tropey, you know, it, it is like that will they, won't they thing, and they draw it out for a long time, but it's, I don't know, like, it's cute. It's awful, it's cute, it's terrible, but I like it. The next issue we're going to talk about is actually from Green Lantern, Green Arrow. So it's a different storyline. So Danny O'Neill takes a page to kind of recap the background of Black Canary. And on that page, it says that at this time, Black Canary is actually feeling a tremendous amount of conflict because she is feeling this strong attraction for Green Arrow, but she still has loyalty to her dead husband. But the way I read this storyline, you know, for the first time as a woman from the outside, I'm like, cool it, Green Arrow. She is just not that into you. And she needs time, man. Like, just like, just back off. It's just not going to happen. This issue, Green Lantern, Green Arrow 78 is an astonishing jump in quality, right? And that quality belongs to Neil Adams. And I would love to have been there in 1970 when the majority of DC Comics looked like the Dick Dillon stuff, which I like. I like Dick Dillon. I think his art is great. Um, but when Neil Adams shows up, it looks like this massive evolutionary leap in rendering and anatomy. It's astonishing. And I love that page where we get the flashback where she's trying to think about all her feelings for Green Arrow and where she is in life. And you get to see Neil Adams redraw her husband's funeral. I do think it's interesting that when he redraws the funeral, he removes all the tears from the heroes from the Dick Dillon panel. Uh, Neil Adams is like, no, no, Superman, he don't cry. We also experience in this issue the progression of Denny O'Neill's politics oh, yeah. and his desire to be progressive. And he takes on bigger, more complicated subjects. And in this issue, he's trying to address the plight of the indigenous peoples of America, and he fumbles the ball so profoundly that it's really edging on 
inexcusable? Uh, I mean, yes. Okay. Like when you read these Green Lantern, Green Arrow comics now, it's like what we were just saying a little while ago. It, you know, it's not quite there, but I appreciate the attempt. It's a big swing. And it's what I want to see out of my fiction in general. Like I think superhero comics is where these issues can be addressed and should be addressed. Like th th this is what I want to see from Green Arrow in particular, because he is a character of the people, the people's plight. All people's plight is his plight. And what Denny O'Neill is doing is inherently narratively perilous. And I really admire his bravery and maybe arrogance in trying to take this on. Yeah, I mean, he just doesn't know. And it will spark eye rolls and some like, ooh, like ugh, shivers. But again, I, you know, I admire the attempt. It's better to try and fail than not try at all. Yeah, and I mean, it's an empathetic adventure story and that's rad. And while it, you know, fumbles the indigenous conversation, I think the uh, lampooning of hippie culture and Charles Manson, uh, while very broad, is a little more on target. Broad and on target, like, a boxing glove arrow. Yes, correct. <laughs> Black Canary, the, this comic book opens with Black Canary getting jumped by four guys for the bike that Superman made for her. And she's found on the side of the road by Joshua, who is the Charlie Manson character. And Green Arrow and Green Lantern on their travels find the bike and is like, where's the girl who was on this bike? A massive coincidence, but comics. And followed by another coincidence because as he's asking that question, she's literally just a few yards away. He's like, how dare you leave her on the side of the road? Oh, there she is. And something's off. She, she's, and we know she's been brainwashed by Charles Manson. I mean, Joshua. And Green Arrow goes to Hal Jordan and he's like, Hal, there is something sick going on. This seems really messed up up and I this is how it's going on in my head like Green Lantern is thinking this guy is always picking on Black Canary he's got to let it go and so Hal finally gets the gumption to go like you know what Black Canary <laughs> she's a free agent she's her own woman she's into this Joshua guy now you gotta just let it go. And in any other situation, that would be exactly what Green Arrow needed to hear. But because this is the one time that Black Canary just so happens to be hypnotized by a maniac, Green Arrow gets the satisfaction of being correct. And from this point on, he is going to be insufferable. Especially when you look at the climax of this comic and what breaks Black Canary from her brainwash, uh, she is told by Joshua to kill Green Arrow, to pull out this gun and fire a bullet into his skull. And it's her feelings, these deep, complicated feelings for Green Arrow that finally snaps her out of Joshua's mind control and she's free. This actually mirrors the situation with Larry Lance because he was under mind control of Aquarius. Yes. But he saw that Dinah was stuck in place by the stickum shaft and Aquarius's rolling rainbow thingy was coming right at her and he shook himself free of that mind control in order to save her. So this is actually 
Vagina, whether she realizes it or, or not, is a super meaningful gesture. Um, and maybe it's what Hawkman didn't realize, that the Earth 2 people just have stronger willpowers than the Earth 1 Justice League members. Yeah, they're constantly shaking off mind control. Yeah. If only we could be so lucky. And Green Arrow clearly gets a little jazzed by this because the second to last panel of this issue puts Green Arrow and Black Canary face to face within kissing distance. And you're like, oh, it's happening. It's happening. But as they are just mere inches apart, he is moralizing right into her face. And he's going like, you know, maybe one day they'll figure out how Joshua was warping people's minds with bigotry. And Black Canary is like, hey, I was hypnotized at the time. I'm not a bigot, which is of course what we all think about ourselves. And Green Arrow goes on to say like, yeah, you were hypnotized, but there was a part of you that was susceptible to that hypnosis. Right. And that is the part of society that needs to be cured. Whatever that innate thing that attracts us to that kind of power over others. And that's how these issues of Green Lantern, Green Arrow tend to end. There is a Twilight Zone lesson being told by Denny O'Neill. But nobody is going to sleep with someone who's giving them a Twilight Zone message directly into their mouth. C correct, yeah, yeah, yeah. Step back, Rod Serling. If you wanna move into my land of shadow and substance, you're gonna have to change the subject, Really quick. Oh no, bedroom doc. I don't know, like reading these issues, you start with Justice League of America number 74 and you're like, wait, hold on. This relationship is weird. This can't turn into anything. Larry Lance is barely cold on the ground and Green Arrow is making his move. No, 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 no. I do not like this. I do not like this at all. But then you get to this issue, Green Lantern, Green Arrow number 78. And yeah, it's still a little weird and problematic, but now I'm into it. I think that the conversation changes when we get that flashback where she says that mm. she has been harboring these feelings for Green Arrow all of this time. Yeah. Like you yeah. would not be able to tell by her actions and you can't really tell by his actions that he is attractive at all. But when we get that subtext of her saying, okay, I'm into it, then you're just like, okay, Dinah, go get some. We, you know, we all we all have a thing for a weird guy. I'll try not to be offended, Lisa. <laughs> I'm into the green arrow of <laughs> podcasting. Uh, you know, I would be curious to find an issue that finally allows her to come to peace with her grieving over Larry Lance. I wonder if that exists. I have not encountered it yet. But listeners, if you know it, please send us a note. I want to hear it. I want to read it. To me, it makes sense that so soon after her husband dies, she is defined for a time by that trauma. Yeah. Because... It, How could it not? Yeah, and she's in this completely new place. She's completely, of her own choosing, disoriented herself. But I don't completely understand in issue 78 how soon after... Aquarius this is like at this point should she maybe 
start having an identity of her own? Well, I mean, publishing-wise, this is only a year since Justice League of America number 74. So comic book continuity, that's what, two weeks? I'll be interested to check in on her again once we've moved forward in the timeline more to see if she has developed past this pain that she's carrying I think absolutely that is going to be the case in our very next episode, without a doubt. Because that trauma is too real, a crisis occurs, two worlds become one, Larry Lance is forgotten. Well, that's not even true because Larry Lance becomes her father and she becomes her mother. So the Larry Lance and Dinah Drake situation is now no longer connected to Oliver Queen in any way. Oh man, it is so easy being a counselor for a comic book couple because you know what? You just wait long enough, those problems will fix themselves. That's right, multiverse. Copay. Jesus, Lisa. Uh, But like, that's gonna really do it for us regarding this week's episode. I think we need to talk about like, what have we learned, Lisa? I feel like uh, as counselors, it's a good thing a crisis is coming because we dropped the ball. I was like, we're going to talk about (laughs) their identities and what identities they're going to start developing as a couple. What about their us-ness? And we just, it didn't even really come up. I do think that thinking about them as a couple, like thinking of them in the context of them as a couple forces you to skip through this awkward meet cute period, right? Because we know their future. So what we're doing is going back in time and observing how they interacted in the earliest stages of the relationship. So that, you know, the self-help side doesn't quite work for them now here in the moment, but I think in our next episode, it will really apply. I do see what our love expert is talking about when it comes to like, well, you can't really celebrate being a couple until each person has a grasp on their own identity. Like over the course of this story, we've seen Green Arrow truly find himself. Like he's like, you know, I was this, just this rich guy who was in for fame and recognition, but now I realize that I actually get a lot of personal satisfaction out of helping people And now I want to travel and I want to help people and I want to see how we can really, as humanity, impact the planet. And because he has a strong sense of his own identity, he's trying to kind of force Black Canary into an us-ness. Like he's trying to go like, look, we have an adventure together. We find each other. And then afterwards, we can kind of decompress and compare notes about what morals we take from our experience. But Black Canary is like, hey, I'm not ready to moralize. I'm not ready to have uh, this kind of moral talk with you because I uh, just lost my husband and I just shook off hypnosis and all of this stuff. So I, it's funny to see like Green Arrow going like, I'm ready. I'm mm-hmm. ready mm-hmm. to be a couple with you and seeing her dig her heels in and go like, I need to find me first. And that's a totally relatable like position that I think a lot of people have found themselves in where they're like, I, I think I now know who I am. I'm ready to uh, find my partner, but you got to find that partner who is also ready to find you. Mm, yeah. It'll be interesting to see if Black Canary just kind of submits to this routine eventually, 
or find herself in the groove of it, or if she'll continue to be the naysayer going like, hey, big picture guy, can we just have can we just have a moment, please, to just process what's actually happening to us as individuals? All that stuff is going to be directly addressed in our next series. I love it when a plan comes together. But Lisa, what I'm most curious about is if you pulled anything about yourself or about us out of this relationship as experienced in these Justice League of America comics and Green Lantern, Green Arrow issue. I did see myself mirrored unflatteringly by Green Arrow because I am that person going like, yeah, but what's the moral of the story, you guys? What have I learned about me? Uh, so that was a little you, humbling. You are a Denny O'Neill character. I am, entirely. I also have enjoyed what Megan Lundgren had to say about like going, your couple identity is something that is separate from you as an individual. And like when we're doing something together, mm. I don't have to continually assert myself. Like sometimes we can just be us. Some It doesn't have to be like a competition between like who's getting more attention. Is it me or mm. is it Brad? Yeah, I get that, but that is a dangerous thought. And I think it relates directly to my having siblings mm. where I, I do kind of feel panicked when I feel like, okay, not everybody is getting their own meanness. You know, I have a lot of kind of uh, Gollum, my preciousness <laughs> over my singular identity because I feel like as a sibling uh, that I felt like that was being threatened all of the time sure. to have to give up your meanness for the sake of the group. Um, but then once I've separated myself, like, oh, our couple identity is this separate thing. Like who, like if we could like outline our couple identity, is it an introvert or is it an extrovert? What's the thing that we like to do together? How am I different than our usness? How is Brad different than our usness? How is our usness different than the both of us? How does it elevate the both of us? Mm. It's interesting when I was revisiting this couple, I mean, like, because this is the first time I've observed this couple at this point in time in their relationship. And I've only known them and I've only known them barely through an issue here and there. I've always known them as the item. Right. So when you go back in time and you explore the meat cute and you see how this meat cute is not ideal and from a distance, you go like, well, this cannot work. I start to think about how we first came together. And I think about myself as early dating Brad or early dating Lisa Brad. And that Brad is very different than the Brad that's sitting here. And I think if you went back and observed our relationship in the same way that we're doing for Ollie and Dinah, we would also be like, uh, yeah, I can see what works, but also like, like, is is this like the greatest romance of all time? And guess what, listeners, it is. But you might not necessarily know that in date one, date two, date three. I also don't want to give the impression that you can't be in a successful relationship until you have your identity figured out completely. Because that's not what the book is saying. Well, and we, that's not the case for us. Like, I feel like our identity, like, I've I've discovered more about who I am during our marriage. 
I do think, like, if you're going through some kind of trauma or you're trying to fix something significant and dysfunctional in your life, maybe that's not the best time to start a relationship. But it's okay to find to end up in a relationship when you're not completely whole or to to be open to a relationship when you feel like underbaked or whatever. Although if I was Hal Jordan during this time period, I would probably give Ollie some advice of like, you need to like back off and let Dinah have her space. This is not the time to mac on her. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, I don't judge Dinah for having feelings for Ollie so close after losing her husband. You know, it is a complicated time and all these feelings are going to be like coming in from all these different places and you shouldn't judge yourself by what what's going on in your little heart. Yeah, yeah, or, or putting expectations on things like grief and trauma and putting timelines on it because you can't, you really can't. I think if I were to give an action item to Dinah and Ollie, it would be to find the things about themselves as individuals that they want to celebrate. And even in contrast to the other, like Green Arrow can think like, yeah, I am a moralizer and a big picture person. And Dinah can go like, but I do look at the task at hand and I do speak up for when I need to process what I've been through. And then once they've kind of done that inventory of what they want to celebrate about themselves as an individual, they can then go like, okay, then who are we? What is our us-ness? How would we draw that character sheet? I think that's a really good place to press pause on Dinah and Ollie for this week. I am so excited to check back in with mm. Dinah and Ollie when their relationship is a little bit more mature, perhaps. <laughs> so where are we going next? Mature is a good word. It's an epic one, friends. We'll be diving into what many consider to be the great Green Arrow comic, 1987's The Longbow Hunters from writer-artist Mike Grell. This is Oliver Queen's Dark Knight Returns, super 80s, overly serious. Think of it as a Roger Corman exploitation take on Green Arrow. It is gritty. It's very violent. It is problematic. Uh, we're going to have a lot to talk about, though, because there's some great stuff, especially in the first issue between Dinah and Ollie. I've already taken a flipperoo through these pages, and the art is amazing. Yeah, Grell is on fire. Okay, Brad, well, I gotta wash all of this stick'em shaft out of my hair. So uh, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Good luck with that, Lisa. <laughs> uh, you can all find me on every social media at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and new show posters, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. There's one more, is Amazon there? Music now. That's right. If you'd like to get exclusive, Ooh. you can join our Patreon, 
where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes, including our Sleepwalking with Sandman series. It's not officially called that, but I'm calling it that. One issue at a time. Issue two dropping tomorrow, maybe? Uh, but if you would like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. I whispered at that time. I don't know. After our assigned reading, I'm kind of team vigilante. Oh, well, I mean, he does have a lasso. Uh, and who doesn't like a lasso? I love a lasso. <laughs> you like saying lasso.